0: Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the MedTech podcast. You join me, your host, Karadeep Singh-Badwell, and on this episode we have Ty Hagler, founder and principal of Trig, an award-winning design firm founded in 2008, working with companies on all phases of product development to help create commercially viable products. Ty, for many years, had a passion for art, design and engineering, hence leading to the formation of Trig in 2008. Having started his career as an industrial designer at Home Depot, he decided to return to school to complete an MBA in innovation management and marketing at North Carolina State University, where he was exposed to medical devices and realized that the issues faced during home development were similar to those within devices, especially during the human economics phase, hence why he decided to serve the industry through his own company, Trig. On this episode, he covers the development of blockchain, plus its integration into healthcare, his career development to date, and the need to develop himself as an entrepreneur, the distribution of pharmaceutical and med tech companies in the RTP area of North Carolina, his athletic past as a world-class kayaker, and how he applied the skills and lessons he learned during his athletic career to his work and his advice for students, together with various different programs available for career development across higher education institutes within the USA.
1: Welcome to the show, Ty. How are you today? I'm um, great, Karen good to Good to see you again.
0: Yeah, good to see you again. So, going from concept to design is often a difficult process.
1: How do you aim to solve that issue at Trig? So, uh, oftentimes, when we work with what we call a medical innovator or somebody who has a concept, oftentimes we're asking them to back up from the idea they've gotten attached to. It could be a certain um, solution from a a, a device to then back up and ask them to try to document what are the unmet needs that they're solving for. And oftentimes backing that up, the the solution might be on a narrow um, aspect of a given procedure. And so we typically back them all the way up to a full journey map of, you know, listing out each of the stakeholders that are impacted by the device what's the total context for that and then we oftentimes wind up finding greater opportunities for innovation beyond kind of the first solution but rather what's the what's the experience what's the overall environment in which the device lives so it's contextually relevant and so it has a better chance of um, getting picked up because we understand the kind of the complete context in which the, the device might be used so uh, we uh, a lot of how we do that is through structured workshops. Um, but oftentimes we're also consulting with individual uh, medical innovators and um, kind of helping them to navigate that as they get to a level of maturity where it's time to you know kind of uh, get get more structured medical device processes in place. So on the topic
0: of workshop, obviously I've met you at the 10x Medical Device conference yeah. and that's where I got to speak. But in terms of these workshops, where are you currently kind of doing this? Is this in and around North Carolina? Or is this something you're looking to take international at some point?
1: So currently, we've done, uh, we've participated in other workshops uh, historically. So, one of which is the Culture Foundation, Wallace H. Culture Foundation, um, for years was running a culture college, which was a basically a, a weekend sprint where teams of biomedical engineering students would come in and um, uh, basically, over the course of the um, workshop, start with um, an unmet need they identified for, from their summer research. And then, by the end, they had gone through all of the concept development, regulatory reimbursement, business model, and we're basically pitching a concept. So, you know, we've done workshops like that or participated in workshops like that, but then the workshop we're facilitating uh, right now is in partnership with UNC Health and UNC Fast Tracks. And so, we're in our, currently in our second season. And so, the objective is to take Clinicians, medical innovators, through a a process where we start off with an unmet need that they've identified. And by the end, then they are really presenting back like a a, a series of solutions, a well articulated unmet need, and then also really like a a plan for what they think their next steps would be to then go out and validate the unmet needs they've identified and the solutions, and then to, you know, then um, have a have a uh, view into funding possibilities for their ideas going forward. Uh, so, uh, you know, we are initially working with UNC Health on this, but um, you know, we're really seeing the possibility to open this up more broadly to other academic institutions, um, where they also have, uh, I guess, people who are interested in becoming a medical innovator, and then, of course, being able to open that up, uh, you know, more broadly beyond that, if there's if there's interest in application. So.
0: When it comes to design, what are the questions that you often wish companies would ask themselves to be able to make them more easy to work with?
1: Oh, wow. Um, what are the questions you wish, them to, wish companies would ask themselves? You know, I think the, the and I think this was part of the, um, the talk that I had at uh, the 10X Medical Device Conference is that um, oftentimes the domain in which you find yourselves, um, you, you might wind up misapplying the tools that you're going to use, um, and so, if, for example, I guess the question might be, what domain am I in, and are the tools that I'm using appropriate for that? So, for example, a lot of um, you know medical device processes, you know, are um, you know, very highly structured and almost determinant Of you've got you know certain pathways that are well defined as far as which pathway am I going to pick to go down. And, you know, oftentimes those are not appropriate times to use design thinking because design thinking is much more about kind of backing up in the big picture and asking are we even using the right process in the first place, and are we even solving for the right problem? so you're asking a a bigger and deeper why. And so those same tools that you might use early on in the process are different than what you'd have in a later stage process where you are focused on you know, kind of um, incremental improvement, quality control versus kind of the big disruptive innovation where we tend to play. Um, I think so asking are the tools we're using the appropriate for the level of ambition we have with our innovation program is kind of the big question I like to ask and um, kind of have a discussion around.
0: So what stage should companies really be approaching you? So understand it might be at the start of phase when the idea is there, but generally at what point should some company decide to bring you on? What do they need to have in place before that process begins?
1: Right. So I think the the area in which we play that is entertaining is the, the entrepreneurial ecosystem in which you have medical innovators who are proposing their own ideas. And so those are nascent companies that are getting started. Uh, but then also with uh, corporate teams where they're trying to drive an innovation process, um, oftentimes will be brought in to help facilitate uh, you know, ideation sessions based on research into unmet needs. And then also to help run what's basically an innovation roadmapping process where you have specific indications you're looking to innovate within. And then helping to do more of a portfolio planning process with you know, here's the array of unmet needs we're looking at. Let's run ideation sessions to help push those through um, to then have seeds of opportunities to then start validating. So those are kind of, both of them are ecosystem plays, one of which is intrapreneurial within an organization and the other one is entrepreneurial within basically a a, a community of uh, like-minded innovators.
0: So as far as I'm aware, you've always been a design engineer from the start in terms of your career. How exactly did you get involved in that field and how did you come up with the idea for Trig to get to where you are today?
1: That's a great question. Uh, So I'll correct that. I'm not actually an engineer. Uh, So I'm an industrial designer, uh, so easily confused, but um, (laughs) uh, so I was at, uh, let's see, I did my undergraduate degree at uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology, uh, graduating in 2003, and um, so... Uh, at the um, then early part of my career, I was at Home Depot as part of the Home Depot Innovation Department and had really done most of my innovation work as part of uh, consumer products, uh, uh, you know, high volume, uh, you know, retail products. And so it wasn't until leaving Home Depot in 2008, uh, going back to school to get my MBA, but then also having had a chance to work with some of the top tier design firms while we were at Home Depot really kind of gave me that um, spark and inspiration to then start uh, start Trig, and then while I was in grad school, um, also got exposed to medical devices and just saw just the uh, the degree of impact that was possible with medical devices. But then also um, really found a lot of crossover between you know like the work that you do with like hand tools, power tools, in the home improvement space. Uh, really, you're dealing with a lot of the same issues at a I guess, a human ergonomics level um, and perception of how well can this tool be used um, within the medical devices space. So I saw a lot of crossover there early on. And so, um, you know, really uh, had built up Trig, you know, around really getting involved with medical devices, doing some early work there, but then also just purely enjoying teaching and um, bringing people along for what we're learning because we learn as much from our clients as we have to teach. And so it's a shared learning as we try to kind of be, perpetually pushing the frontiers of innovation with like new techniques, uh, new approaches and, um, and trying to level up our understanding together.
0: What future innovations are you working at at Trig? Uh, You mentioned earlier when we were talking something about blockchain, would you like to dwell on that?
1: Yeah. um, So, you know, it's one of those things where with blockchain, you don't just encounter it lightly. You either like uh, you either go all the way down the rabbit hole to understand the potential with it or you just kind of brush it off as, um, you know, something that's a transitory, um, you know, fad that's happening. So with blockchain, you know, currently right now it's gone from, you think about cryptocurrencies has gone from creating digital currency to um, then figuring out how to create smart contracts to basically create basically whole like um, limited liability corporations on a smart contract basis. And so, you're having this basically fundamental transformation that's happening within the blockchain space right now that while there's um, speculative cycles to it, we certainly see a lot of ridiculous speculative nature that's happening within the space. What's interesting is that there's new funding models around um, innovation that are super interesting. And so um, one of the early pioneers here is a group called Gitcoin. Uh, so you think about a combination of GitHub and then uh, 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 coins. Um, and so they've got a model called quadratic funding, which basically says if we've got a pool of grant dollars, let's say you've got a million dollars to distribute, then you're going to allocate more of those dollars towards grants that um, basically have more people voting for that grant. So let's say you have 1,000 people that vote with $1, then it's going to disproportionately allocate um, the, the pooled funding to that grant Versus one person donating a thousand dollars, it's not going to donate as much to that. So you're still funding what they call public goods using this process. Um, but uh, right now, it's really been focused on public goods for blockchain. So basically, um, applications that are broadly used across the, the um, kind of the, the blockchain ecosystem. What's interesting and novel is that they're allowing that to be. Um, uh, segmented out so you can have a customized version of this Gitcoin quadratic funding model that could then be purely focused on healthcare innovation. And so that gets super exciting because then you have a, a way of providing market signal for a given unmet need that could get proposed. And you can even use cr- doctor credentials to um, basically have a, a weighted vote for each individual concept, you can get market feedback before ever actually committing to a concept for which direction we want to go down and then also have a funding model for those uh, medical innovators to help them make traction before they then advance to the stage where they're eligible for an SBIR or an STTR grant. So it's super interesting, it's super early stage, and um, uh, I see a lot of applications for the medical device community as a whole to continue to fund where I I would argue that that healthcare innovation is a public good, that we all benefit as an ecosystem. And so the more we can continue to support that and um, enhance some of the other public good funding that's out there, like SBIR grants, um, just to help, you know, kind of push more of this type of innovation forward.
0: The listeners today who may not know exactly what blockchain is, how would you summarize it in terms of MedTech?
1: So, um, Blockchain, I see as a distributed ledger technology. Uh, So the easiest way to think about that is you've got, um, let's say you wanna make sure that you've got a contract, you've got a um, outcome that you want to make sure you've um, defined and that nobody can tamper with it. So then you take that record or that outcome and you distribute it across as many possible computers as you can so that you're certifying that that outcome, that transaction, is valid um, using basically a distributed um, uh, record among all these different computers. And so over time, the longer that that, um, that outcome is trapped in the ledger, then the more secure it is, because it continues to get encased in the code as it basically just um, uh, continues to get stored as a, as a transaction. So. Um, it's like a fly getting trapped in amber where it continues to get um, deeper and deeper layers uh, around that and providing deeper and deeper security. Uh, So they they use a lot of different uh, buzzwords in the space, one of which is trustless, where um, you you, you don't have to verify that the other party um, is who they say they are. You can use a lot of anonymous tools to then, um, but then to verify that a given contract or a given um, outcome has been achieved and but you don't need some central organization to say that this has happened rather it's a community that has all said this has happened and come to an agreement on that
0: okay so when we spoke last time you mentioned that your location north carolina had a big pharmacy how does medtech compare to that and why would you say that is
1: Ooh, okay so um yeah i think the the RTP area definitely has a lot of the major uh, pharmaceutical companies here, GlaxoSmithKline, um, a number of others, and so what we've found is that um, because there's so much investment in the space, that um, support for medical devices um, usually has to kind of tag along. So it like it, you know, it's it doesn't have it. While there's a, a number of extremely talented people and great companies that are in the area um, usually you're, um, we're working within the context of, 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 the, the big pharmaceutical companies that are in the area. Um, so, and if you compare the region that we have to say like the Charlottesville, Virginia area, where the entire pharma and med tech community is kind of rising at the same rate, um, there's kind of more of a, an equal weighting of kind of the, the level of investment that's available to each of those, um, uh, different early communities. And so you know, I think it, um, to a certain degree, I think we're, we're trying to figure out our own um, community and space with respect to a very well-established uh, community, at least within where we are regionally. And that um, it has its both benefits and of course, attended challenges as well.
0: So you mentioned in the past that you have an interest in flatwater kayaking. How exactly uh, yeah. did you get into that sport?
1: So uh, I grew up in Gainesville, Georgia. And the nineteen ninety six Olympics uh, venue for flat water kayaking was about fifteen minutes from my home. Um, so uh, you know, early on, so uh, my parents were both uh, whitewater kayakers, and so we'd grown up, uh, just kind of going down the river with them, kind of uh, getting stuck in the front of my dad's canoe and going down doing whitewater rafting. And so my as the Olympic venue was coming to town, Um, they wanted to leave a legacy for basically the Olympic venue. And so we wound up being a part of forming a kayak club around the Olympic venue. And so along the way, we wound up having Olympic level coaches. I wound up being a volunteer for the 96 Olympics where I got to hold the athletes boats at the start of the race. So we were out on the lake and kind of participating in the Olympics and had about as good of a seat to the start of every race as you could hope for. Uh, so really, that was the spark where we got in, got interested in flatwater kayaking, which um, flatwater kayaking is similar to rowing. We use a similar uh, course on a, a lake, and there'd be a, a buoys and there's a start and a finish to it, a timing tower, and all of that. And uh, so the boats are very tippy, so they're carbon fiber boats that um, uh, you know it takes a couple of months just to learn how to balance them. Um, but it's a very uh, technically demanding sport as well, because the biomechanics of how you move the paddle through the water uh, definitely can change the outcome. And so it's a you know technically demanding sport. And I wound up uh, having a lot of fun in the team boats. So uh, two-person and four-person four person team boats. And um, you know, that was uh, the... Um, you know, kind of the area where I excelled had gone to a couple of different world championships attended went to two different Olympic trials but never quite made an Olympic team, but I was um, considered an Olympic hopeful. And the opportunity I had at Home Depot to be part of the innovation team um, resulted from some of my kayaking. Uh, so I had uh, done well enough in the 2003 World Championships, I think we came in. Uh, 14th overall in one of the events. And so to qualify for Home Depot's Olympic sponsorship program, you had to be top 15 in the world. So um, I know that got my foot in the door to get my career kicked off, which uh, I would not have planned it. You couldn't have possibly planned for that kind of thing to happen, but there was some serendipity there that um, that wound up working out. And um, so it was a, a real privilege to get to compete at that level on the international stage, traveled all over the place, uh, Australia, Italy, Croatia. um, And uh, it was just a lot of fun to get to be able to do that before uh, finally retiring in 2006 to kind of more fully focus on, uh, I guess, professional career. So,
0: During your sporting career and your travels, what were your biggest life
1: lessons that you learned during those times? Uh, You know, a lot of it was certainly resilience um, because, you know, in... In everyday challenges with sport, you—you um, you mean you have setbacks, right? Like, so you—you you have a certain plan for how a race is going to go, and you face challenges with headwinds or chop, or you know, you have a bad start. And so, being able to recover from—I uh, guess just—you know—obstacles that happen for you is, um, you know, kind of that. Mental toughness to respond to adversity is a major part of that. Um, also, learned a lot about team building uh, through the course of um, you know, my athletic career, and as far as you know, being able to um, you know form uh, form teams as we went in the different team boats, and then to organize around a given strategy. And, um, and so, there was one example for the the two thousand three uh, team trials. Um, so. Uh, we had two different uh, teams of uh, four-person boats, and I had qualified as the, the eighth fastest individual athlete, and then they took the top eight and then put us in two different uh, team boats. So with the time trials, there was the uh, one through four formed one boat, and then five through eight formed the second boat, and they had us race against each other. Uh, so... One of the strategies that I had is that the other boat was used to working individually. And so I uh, pulled my team together quickly. And, and we focused on coordinating for the start of the race to make sure that we nailed the start. And so what wound up happening is that we wound up having a psychological advantage because our boat launched out in front of, you'd think, the favorite. And because we we're able to jump out in front of the other boat, the other boat really lost cadence. They weren't hitting the paddle of hitting the water at the same time. And even though they were at an individual level faster than our boat, the sum of a coordinated team wound up beating the the top one through four boat. And so that was a kind of a wild upset. It kind of showed the value of teamwork and, um, you know, was a a cool story from those days. So um, anyway, lots of life lessons from that time period Um, and certainly getting to travel the world and like we would... Um, we would call billet, which you'd stay in the, you know, the home of a family that was also a, a kayaker. So you build these like lifelong friendships with um, other people in the community and you get to kind of see like, you know, different regions of the world and, um, you know, kind of benefit from others' hospitality. And of course, we'd host others from around the world too. So it was uh, just a, a, a special time to like get to get to do that and um, kind of gain a a more uh you, you gain membership into a global athletic community as a result of kind of doing that sport so.
0: for the listeners today who are perhaps still students or maybe at the start of their careers and are looking to get into design engineering what advice would you have for them
1: so there's a lot of great schools that are out there um and i've so you know i went to the georgia tech school of industrial design um so Uh, North Carolina State University's industrial design program also is an excellent program. um, Just kind of across the, uh, of course, Virginia Tech, there's also some great students coming out of there, Rhode Island School of Industrial Design, um, Art Center in Pasadena, California. There's a number of great programs that are out there in terms of um, uh, being able to learn the trade of industrial design. And so I think the industrial design skill set being as broad as it can be for application, because industrial design, you can with an industrial design education, you can go through and design like automobiles and do automotive design, shoe design. So the array of topics you can get into is very broad. But then as far as like specialized programs within programs within medical devices, I'm seeing some interesting crossover between industrial design programs and biomedical engineering programs, because the biomedical engineer, biomedical engineering. Curriculum winds up having an equal equal span of breadth where you're having to learn uh, anatomy, you're having to learn, um, you know, like all the uh, engineering, medical technologies, um, kind of uh, clinical understanding, empathy. Like there's a, a wide array of skill sets needed to be a good biomedical engineer as well as an industrial design. So those two disciplines I see have a lot in common. And I particularly appreciate those uh, biomedical engineering programs. Uh, like the master's program at uh, University of Virginia, that go to great lengths to bring in outside industrial design support to further the education of biomedical engineers. So, I think anywhere where you can find that crossover between, I think, design from an uh, industrial design and biomedical engineering, that's really where I think a lot of the, I think, the more innovative programs wind up, wind up living. So. Um, and then of course, you know, just further reaching out to professionals in the space. And um, you know, of course, uh, like doing some networking and asking questions is a, a great way to further your education um, and kind of build those, build those connections to help further your career.
0: So as you mentioned earlier, you do travel, you do a lot of workshops, you do a lot of teaching and mentoring. What tricks or advice would you have for people who are perhaps looking to do something similar? You know, how do you go about engaging with these kinds of processes?
1: Uh, so setting up and like running a workshop is something that uh, let's see um, it's like preparing a Thanksgiving meal. That um, it's basically the the actual workshop itself is um, the success of which is determined by the preparation you do beforehand. You can't just show up and run a you know a workshop without having done any preparation. And so the quality of the work that you've done to really define the scope of the workshop. And so um, you know, we talk about these in terms of uh, unmet needs. Um, so the uh, creative workshop um, where you're tapping into creative energies and you know, really every, every human has an, a latent creative genius that as if you were, a, when you were five years old, you would have tested as a creative genius. And over time, you might have lost your confidence in your ability to be a creative genius. So over the course of the workshop, um, we work to unlock people's creative geniuses, but then it's the work that you've done to define the unmet need, is really where um, you define where that creative energy goes. So an analogy might be, um, I, uh, you know, pouring yourself a cup of tea. That the unmet needs really is the teapot, and it's the um, the cup that you've defined, basically the emptiness into which you're going to pour the cup of pour the hot water and brew some tea. Um if you um, because if you haven't d- defined that cup of that cup itself, then the hot water or the creative energy is going to splash all over the table and go everywhere. So if you are planning on setting up a workshop, it really is that preparation, going through and doing that research, defining the scope, and um, what are the core problems you're trying to solve that really establishes the success of a workshop. And then from there, um, you know really it's a matter of Uh, documenting and then validating kind of the results of that, making sure you get patents on, um, you know, kind of the outcomes of, uh, of those workshops and, um, you know, making sure you've got a a successful uh, roadmap coming out of uh, these different workshops you run. So, yeah.
0: So we talked about kayaking, a sport that you've retired from, but what do you get up to outside of work?
1: Uh, So we have a pretty busy family life. So we've got three young kids and they certainly keep us moving. So, you know, I think we, we wind up, having our hobbies be our kids' hobbies to a certain degree where, um, you know, the you know my kids haven't gotten excited about kayaking, but lately they've gotten into competitive diving. So we're usually, you know, trotting our kids through to different dive meets and um, practices and whatnot. Um, so personally, I try to get out in the kayak once a year, every Father's Day, just to make sure I can still remember how to keep the kayak upright. Uh, but then otherwise, um, I still love to go for a run of... You know, try to get out is kind of a way to stay fit. I you know, I know, Karen Deep, you get to go for, go through and do some do some running as well, uh, as we were talking before the podcast. Um, so um, yeah, I think otherwise, um, uh, you know, I I tend to have a high sense of wonder. So anything that kind of uh, like is an exciting new. Um, kind of technology or something like that usually winds up uh, kind of inter- like being a source of entertainment for me. And of course, anything to do with science fiction is uh, um, kind of a favorite as you get to explore some of these ideas really is almost like prototypes of what the future might be. So,
0: hi, right, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. To wrap up today, what one piece of advice would you leave the listeners with?
1: Uh, I think if you are Ooh, a piece of advice. Um, I think if you are looking to innovate, uh, make sure that you determine your, um, your level of appetite for innovation. That uh, as you're, if you're only planning to do incremental innovation that you can do more incremental processes. If you're looking to do something disruptive, then you need to open up and do different processes. And that's where tools like design thinking can, can really come to play. So, um, you know, spend some time thinking about what your level of appetite is and level of, level of ambition for innovation and pick the right tools.
0: Ty, right, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and I hope we get to meet soon again, uh, whether that'll be at a conference workshop or just outside of work.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, Karen Dean. It's been a pleasure. Music.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 26 of the MedTech podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe. If you wish to learn more about Ty, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or visit his company website, the links of which are provided in the description. If there are any particular topics or guests you would like for me to have on the show in future, then feel free to reach out.